Hi, welcome to the Food in the Edge podcast, and I'm your host, JP McMahon. Hi, I'm JP McMahon. Hi, I'm Shamek Brosh. And welcome to another episode of the Food in the Edge podcast. Welcome to another episode of Food in the Edge podcast. This time we're going to talk about our recent launch in Derby's in London, where we highlighted the Irish chefs working in London and the food they're producing. We're also going to talk about migration and immigration in relation to food and the people that make food travel. We're going to discuss food education and allergies. Where do we draw the line with allergies and dislikes and things that customers eat? These are all the things that we need to think about in our daily life in the kitchen. Children in restaurants, do you want them or do you not? And do you, um, what do you do about it? And finally, we're going to talk about collapse of Jamie Oliver's recent uh, restaurants uh, with the loss of uh, 1,300 jobs. So I hope you enjoyed our last podcast um, where we changed up the format a little bit and we talked about things such as food and Brexit, the Eat Lancet diet, um, the future of seaweed farming and also uh, vegetable farming in Ireland and the struggles that it's going through. So today we have another list of uh, topics to get through and uh, we're going to start with our recent launch of Food and the Edge in London. So we launched at Derby's, a new restaurant by Robin Gill in the Nine Elms and uh, um, I suppose our main aim of launching in London was to showcase not only what we're doing with uh, Food in the Edge, but there has been a great historical relationship between Ireland and England in terms of people migrating to London. And Irish chefs have gone to London for many, many years. And I suppose we wanted to highlight those things. So we took five chefs who are from Ireland who are based in London at the moment and got them to do snacks. I suppose to showcase what they're doing at the moment and how that might be considered Irish, if at all, and what that relationship is to London. We also had a little few panels. We talked to the guys, the Irish chefs, about what it meant to be an Irish chef in London. And what was interesting, I think, was I think when many of them came over, there wasn't such a, a community of chefs. I mean, there were many, many Irish chefs, but to a community of, of people that you could talk to. And there seems to be very much something like that now. I think the occupation has changed a lot in the last 15, 20 years. And, and now being a chef isn't, I think, as looked down upon, I think, in many ways as it used to be. We also had past speakers talk about their own experience of Food in the Edge. Uh, Pierre Kaufman, who I suppose is very foundational in terms of modern British cooking, even though he's uh, from France, influenced a lot of chefs from Marco Pierre White to, to Gordon Ramsay. And Pierre talked with uh, Claude Vossi and uh, Doug McMaster. And so they talked about their experience of Food in the Edge and what Food in the Edge meant to them. It was nice that Claude had talked about not knowing too much about Irish food before Food in the Edge and knowing, obviously knowing about Guinness and uh, and rugby, but uh, not knowing about too much after that. And uh, Pierre talked about the community of people that, that go to Food in the Edge. And, and finally, Doug talked about his attitudes towards waste and sustainability and how, I suppose, being able to go to Food in the Edge and teach people about those things is something that he... Um, something that he feels is um, is worthwhile. Tom Brown and Sky Janelle also talked about what makes them cook. I mean, I suppose outside the idea of they're just cooking for, for people because they're hungry, but what, what 
values harbour in their cooking. And I think Tom made a good point saying that it was really bringing joy to people. That was uh, was interesting. I mean, cooking things well and bringing joy to them bringing people together and, and Sky was, was the same so this kind of idea of cooking for others to make them not only feel better but I suppose to share share cultural experiences and so we, we, we had a great turnout there as 100 people came along a lot of different media and that and hopefully it goes a little bit towards showcasing what we do at Food on the Edge which is going to take place again in NUIG in Galway in October. So I suppose coming out of that, we'd like to start with uh, the topic of migration and immigration, which are two, I suppose, issues that are central to global affairs today, but also central to cooking in general. And that ties in with, uh, I suppose, the idea of, of launching in London and discussing with Irish chefs. And I mean, a lot of the time now, we forget about food in relation to migration. I mean, we have so many immigrants who uh, come to our countries uh, and end up working in the industry. And I suppose most of the industry, one could say, is is run by immigrants. And I suppose technically, I suppose I don't really like using the word immigrants because it has, for me, it has negative connotations that between a native person and an immigrant. But I think even in relation to our own businesses, we have 45 staff and I think only five are from Ireland and the other 40 are from are from elsewhere and I think this there are nights in Cava where there's only foreigners working. foreigners working and that's even even when you say the word foreigner it's like yes yeah, it seems I don't know why these these things have negative connotations and I think this it's an interesting thing to think about because uh, even when you think about Brexit and what that what that means and what they're trying to do they're worried about external influence and trying to take the power back themselves but I know for one that food industry in Ireland wouldn't run without people from the outside and that's the same in in America as well as someone someone said recently when I was talking about migration they were saying that uh, Trump was trying to build walls and that we need to break them down because we need more people and the industry just won't survive without an influx of immigrants I think it shows that as a country how we have evolved in the sense that when I started in the industry um, when I was 15 or so, so 25 years ago, there was mostly Irish people in, in the industry. Okay, and maybe that was because the economy was less um, inviting. Less, yeah, the economy was less inviting, but also because the country was poorer. So people had to take whatever jobs they could. And maybe this is one of the reasons why so many of my family fell into food. Whereas now, I think less and less Irish people are entering into the food industry. There's a, a reasons for this. I think one, it's a difficult um, industry to, to, to be in. The hours are antisocial. You work at night. And I think... A lot of uh, a lot of Irish people are deciding to not enter the food industry and, and to work in computing or to work in to, to work in other things. I don't know the same the same as the, in in Poland or is it still uh, what is it like there? To be honest, I have no idea. You're not there anymore. I'm not See? there anymore. You're my, you're I'm Irish. Irish. Yeah. yeah, you're 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 as Irish as uh, as as I am. Um, but it is something it is something to 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 think about. Um, and uh, I suppose I'd be interested to. Um, to see what, what other people think about this and how many Irish people are in their kitchens. And because we all talk about promoting Irish food, but what does that mean? Does it just stop with the food? Does it go into the farms? I mean, how many people who are working on farms are Irish? I mean, very few. I think a lot of the, all over Europe, most of the workers on farms are migrant workers. And then usually they get paid very badly to produce food. 
that ends up um, on our tables all over Europe. And so it's something we need to think about is how far back do we push the chain when we want to talk about promoting Irish food? Is it just that the vegetable is grown in Ireland and that's a wonderful thing? Does it matter who uh, who grew that vegetable or where they were from? And these are things that I think that are interesting and that I think we should be talking about more. I mean, on the issue of migration and food, I mean, particularly growing up, I mean, Ireland was insulated place and we didn't really think too much about external influences. I mean, Italian food made a big impression to me in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, for some reason, there was this impression when I was growing up anyway, that Irish food and what we had in Ireland was was from Ireland. And that wasn't the case because, I mean, we had bananas and, and all sorts of things that don't grow in Ireland. But I think that there was, we didn't really think too much about how much food had uh, was trapped was was being imported into Ireland, but also how much food historically had ended up in Ireland. And I mean, researching the book that I wrote, uh, I was it was interesting to see different stuff like curry and exotic fruit and um, almonds, how much they uh, they played a part in Irish cuisine over the last couple of hundred years, if not thousands of years, at least 1,000 anyway. And I think that was the Vikings that probably first brought olive oil to Ireland because they had trading routes all the way from the Black Sea to almost to up to Newfoundland in terms of taking cod and salting it and that. And these are things that we forget about because we imagine that we're in a, a global food order now, but I mean, we've had a global food order for probably 2000 years. And um, we were supposed to need to think about those things because if we don't, then we imagine stuff that is foreign has no place in our country. And that's not true at all. I mean, stuff, food is always migrating. I mean, we can't stop food moving around from place to place because when people migrate, food migrates. And if even if the people move on, the food stays there. And I think almonds is a really good example because the seemingly the Irish, particularly the Anglo-Irish were fascinated with almonds and there's so many almond recipes from the 16 and 1700s and even I came across a, a recipe for almond milk which most people would imagine I don't know was invented by Starbucks or someone that uh, something quite contemporary because someone didn't want milk but almond milk was a uh, was something that is, has been in Ireland for a long long time I suppose it was a nutritious nut milk that people would make so you blend up your your almonds and your water and then you strain it you have a liquid that it is full of nutrients and also then uh, people they would put leaves strawberry leaves and rosemary in it to uh, to flavor and they also did this with barley as well because so much of these external influences was because ireland was part of the british empire and we had like a global trade and so because it is global trade it's difficult to draw divisions between what we consider irish and what we consider english and of course there's regional differences and there's difference in terms of the class of people whether you're a laborer or a peasant or a part of the aristocracy but it's it is difficult um, and this quote kind of talked about that when it comes down to it it's very hard to see the difference between the clear distinction between Irish and British cuisine and this is probably most apparent when we think about things like the full Irish and the full English and like breakfasts and and what makes them different in the breakfast in Northern Ireland being different to the breakfast in Ireland because one includes a potato farrel or the one in Ireland doesn't have beans in the full English does or different stuff like that and there are specific regional differences but I think what it all boils down to is that 
uh, on the issue of food around the world. I mean, ultimately, we have about six or seven different cuisines that operate globally and other cuisines kind of come under those things. And we could probably see a lot of similarities between Ireland and European cuisine. So I always, I think for me, Ireland falls under that bracket as opposed to having a distinct cuisine in its own right. But this is becoming more and more complex as more and more people travel. And I think the future of, of food and, and the future of having food tied to a specific place is going to be more disrupted. I think ultimately all places might end up looking like New York where you have a lot of different influences in the one place and you have a Chinatown and you have a little Italy and you have different places that are represented in a small way but it's very hard to tie down like when you what would you say like what is New York cuisine? I mean, it's a global melting pot. And uh, while we're not there yet, Ireland is developing and the more eateries that open and the more different food that comes in. So our next topic centers around food education in quite a broad way, but also specifically tied to tied to different allergies and dislikes and I suppose the difficulties that we have at the moment in the industry about how many people are coming out to a restaurant and they're deciding what they don't eat and what they don't want to eat and even last night in the restaurant near we had people who uh, end up deciding not to eat with us because there was so much stuff on the menu that they didn't want and we have a tasting menu in near and I mean it's advertised as a tasting menu and that is um, I suppose they booked in on that and I suppose the, the frustrations that, that are apparent in the industry is that while we have 14 or so classifiable allergens that are quite serious to some degree because we have um, shellfish and, and nuts which can lead to I suppose severe illness or death. A lot of these issues for me centre around people's lack of education in relation to what it means to go out to dinner or to go out for a meal and while on any given night in the restaurant at the moment and I'm sure this is the case for a lot of people in the, in the industry we might have nine different menus where we have people who don't want uh, who have an allergy to onions or an allergy to oh i can't even remember any of the top up top of my head nuts in the first place probably yeah well nuts was supposed for me and not a nut allergy is like is is a real allergy <laughs> like, okay so least allergies you don't believe in oh allergies allergies i don't believe in um yeah. i don't i don't think there's a, an allergy to onions i think people cannot like onions or I mean there is allergies that people can have a dairy allergy people can have a nut allergy where they need to carry a, an EpiPen if they have um, anaphylactic shock but even when it comes down to people going like well I don't eat I don't know I don't eat lamb but I will eat chicken so you have a the dislikes and the don't eats and what, what's happening is is that it's kind of causing two things on the one side you have restaurants that are trying to accommodate people more and more and more and there is one in new york that's actually it's desi designed from top to the bottom just to serve people with allergy with to allergy. make them feel safe and protect their health yeah and 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 that's like that's that's a fair point and on the other side you have restaurants now that um, i know a few in spain and also you have miyazaki's japanese restaurant in cork where seafood is part of his tradition and he says i have seafood on my menu um we can't accommodate people who don't eat seafood and then you will have a people that say that well that's not fair and restaurants should accommodate everyone but where do you draw where do you draw the line and while if you have a popular restaurant like say 
cava, which does a lot of people, has a lot of different tapas, you can accommodate the, uh, a lot of different people because people come in and they can choose off the menu. But it's much more difficult when you have a smaller a la carte menu and people balk and then come in and they go, well, I don't like anything on the menu and then leave. And because for every table that books in and then doesn't eat and leaves, there's economic loss in that. But I do think food allergies are, are a serious thing because certain ones need to be abided by. And if we can't offer guarantees, then what do you do? I mean, if you have nuts in your kitchen, you have to state that there's possibly um, cross-contamination. But, you know, I'm allergic to guinea pig uh, fur. Yeah. So if I hear that people come to a restaurant and they say, I have severe allergy to whatever, nuts, fish, name it. Yeah. So for me, that's like me going to the hotel that advertise we have guinea pig in every bed yeah. for your comfort and fun, play with them, they're friendly. And then at the desk, I say, listen, I'm allergic, do something about it. Yes. But I like guinea pigs. I suppose for me, like their nuts are so widespread. I mean, that it's very difficult to have a nut-free atmosphere. I think you can have, you can go to a vegetarian restaurant that will not have fish or shellfish and you can have an allergy and you can go in there and there won't be any. But it's very difficult. And also flour, because we bake and then you have someone who is celiac. And, and let's, let's be honest, If you have flour in the kitchen, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, yeah. And so it is very difficult. So if someone gets sick and they are a celiac, I mean, whose fault is it? Is it the restaurant's fault? Is it the person who came into the restaurant knowing that there was flour in the atmosphere? And there was a call um, in the UK because of this girl who died because she had a massive nut allergy from something in one of the chain restaurants, I think it was Pret-a-Manger, that didn't list the nut as an ingredient. And they're saying we need to put every single ingredient on every single thing. But like, what does that mean in terms of a restaurant? Do you need to start printing out lists of what's in every single dish? And, and what does that mean to everyone else? And who's going to bear the cost of that? Because it's just like, it's not the way things work. And, and let's be honest, the fun of cooking, it's gone. Yes. Oh, 100%. I Because mean, like if you're a real chef, yeah. you just play with things yeah. on, the, on the pan. Yeah? yeah. You can add something, throw something in. Yeah. But then you can't add stuff because it's not listed on yes. the menu. <laughs> and and, and um, well, I suppose what irritates me the most is people who have a dislike towards, say, onions and then call it an onion allergy. So then you make sure there's no onions in the dish. And then halfway through the meal, you find they're eating their partner's uh, dish that has onions in it. And they go, oh, I don't mind a few or, or I don't mind. I, I'm only allergic to them when I can't see them. And stuff, and I have absolutely heard this, and or I've or I've heard. I said I was a celiac because when I was bucked, I was bloated and I'd eaten croissants. So I just wanted it. I didn't want to eat bread. And what it does is it, it diminishes the people who are actually allergic to something. But then at the same time, it, it I think it takes away from the responsibility of the kitchen who feel, well, look, is this person really allergic or is they not? Are they not? And I wouldn't be surprised if if restaurants start asking for um, to see documentation. Yeah. In, at some proof, level or proof. or proof if you say i have a nut allergy and for me the two most serious ones or maybe the three are are nut and shellfish because they can lead to death i don't think i mean i can be someone can correct me but i do not think i haven't heard of anyone dying from from dairy and so we get a, like a dairy intolerance but a dairy intolerance is very different from being allergic to dairy but we have people claim that they cannot have any butter um, or any cream but then when you go and make them a menu 
and then you find that, well, I might have a little bit, or they have cheese at the end of the meal and they've told you they're allergic to milk. And like, it's very difficult not to get frustrated. And there is no simple answer. I mean, you have the people with allergies on the one side that are calling for more and more regulation. At the same time, you have chefs and restaurants and uh, cafes and bars that have to deal with more and more administration and also the possibility of being sued when something goes wrong. But where does the responsibility lie if someone does not tell you or someone gives you the wrong information? But the, again, these are things that I think are worthwhile talking about. And I think, as you said, I mean, food is, cooking is a creative enterprise. And if it becomes too administrative, then I think that's a different type of cooking. And maybe there needs to be different restaurants to accommodate people. And then then I suppose then you're into separating people and you're into divisions in society, then you're into to more problems. There's another aspect of it and another risk. Uh, every time a person with severe allergy comes to the um, restaurant, some of the equipment, it's washed before serving. And the question is, are we washing enough of the equipment or maybe maybe we we should wash everything because you never know where the nuts may be hiding yeah and i think even like i know i know two people who have had one person like my um brother's wife's sister uh she's allergic to nuts and she had an anaphylactic shock on a plane because someone opened up a pack of peanuts because they have the air circulating all yeah. the time so i like i think something like that where a decision needs to be made. I mean, I don't think people would miss peanuts on a plane. Like, no, I mean, no. and so I don't see why we can't. No, I, in, in general, I think we should point out that we, we should respect people's allergies if they may lead to something dangerous. Yeah. I mean, if I had a peanut allergy, I probably wouldn't eat in a Chinese restaurant because they use a lot of peanuts. And so I think to go into a Chinese restaurant and then say, I'm allergic to peanuts, you better make sure there is there has no there is no trace. I think that's unfair on the restaurant. Where I think it's completely different to be on a plane and say, well, make sure that I have, an, I have a peanut allergy, make sure no one opens peanuts on the plane. I can see signs in the near future no peanuts, like big signs before entering the plane. Yes. No peanuts, no, I don't know, no whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose you can't really just carry shellfish in your pocket. They're going to so. search you. Search you, yeah, yeah, for um, for, 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 for peanuts. But again, I'd be, we'd, I'd be interested to see um, what uh, what people think about, about these about issues. Do we need more administration on, on allergies? Or do we need people taking more responsibility for um, uh, for their own allergies? I wouldn't count on it wouldn't count on people taking more no. responsibility no because I, I think people, people becoming want... dumber and dumber and they actually i think in general people think that someone should do stuff for them think yes. for them in general people like to take as little responsibility as, as possible i think definitely in relation to food education for me um people always say well someone else needs to teach us what we can eat and what we can't eat rather than me actually investigating it and I think that one of the reasons why we have such problems with with our health and with food is because people just follow what they're told and they say I don't know for the last 30 or 40 years that fat is bad okay let's not eat fat let's eat sugar and then it flips around and then people are going okay let's stop eating sugar let's eat more fat and the problem is I think not only is everyone everyone is an individual and, and they respond to food in different ways, but I think people need to make a little bit of uh, effort themselves to educate themselves about what sugar, fat and salt does. Especially the knowledge is available now 
more so than ever. Everywhere. More so everywhere. Than ever. Just you Google do not need yeah, You do not need to go into a library and open a no, tome. Of, you no. can literally look up stuff and you can go in even if you were wanted to go deeper, you could just go onto Google Scholar and you can look up scholarly articles on butter if you if you wanted to go that deep. But even putting in on a surface level, you will find different assessments and and still a lot of people would think, Oh, I better have low fat milk and low fat margarine. I mean for me these things are, are, are terrible things and we need to process our food less and so eating refined sugar over good fats like butter is for me is insane and it's uh, like I challenge anyone to find a low sugar yogurt that has fat in it because we're obsessed with taking all the fat out of yogurt and at the same time we just put loads and loads of sugar into them and we don't even realize that there's like 10 or 15 grams like per 100 so it's a tablespoon of sugar for every for every 100 grams of yogurt and that's quite sweet but we don't seem to get it and that's why we have problems with obesity and that's why we have problems with cancer related illnesses that that a lot of which come out of food and yeah. and I don't think putting less salt on your food at home has anything to do with it. And yet people are taking salt out of their diet completely, which is just as bad because your body needs salt. And so I think it's the it's the, the, the processed foods that we have that are full of salt as opposed to putting salt on uh, on stuff ourselves. So this is one of Shamak's favorite ones. Um, and as a restaurant owner, I suppose I'll, I'll have to put my owner hat on and then I'll have to put my uh, customer hat on. And it's how do we feel about children in restaurants? And this has been in the media over the last couple of weeks and months. And we had our own example of a uh, child in the restaurant. We have a child policy in, in an ear where if you're happy with your child and you want them to come in, I will gladly take them. We did have a child crawling around the restaurant. Thankfully, they were a first table in. And, but I suppose if you're coming out and spending 100 euro ahead on a, on a tasting menu the last thing you want to hear is either a child screaming or a child underneath your table but there's been a situation I witnessed uh, when a small child actually puked in the restaurant so if you add this to the 100 to 100 euro meal yeah yeah yeah, yeah. actually I wouldn't be really happy I know I know well, I suppose I wouldn't be happy if someone puked in the restaurant, whether they were a child or whether they're not a child. Um, and as someone who has children, I mean, you have children as well, Shamik. Um, they're a bit older now, but uh, I think it's really good to bring children into restaurants. But there are some restaurants that are not suitable. Exactly. Let me stop you there. Shouldn't restaurants be divided? Family restaurants and other restaurants. Yeah, but then... For grown-ups. Yeah, but then for me... It's nice to bring... But there is a reason that you can't take a child to a restaurant after nine or whatever, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or to the pub. Yeah. Because grown-ups do grown-up stuff, and they don't want kids to run around and... Yeah, and puke. And puke and wreck things. And But I think it's really good to have children in restaurants, because I think children need to be educated about the restaurant space. Oh, no, that's great. That's, first of all, that that's great memories yeah. from childhood. If you go, for example, you know, Sunday... Sunday um, Meals, yeah. Sunday meals, Sunday lunch, the, yeah. yeah, Sunday lunch in the restaurant. Something you would remember for the rest of your life. And these are things that we that we that make us. I mean, childhood memories around food. And I remember plenty of them. Even even going to fancy restaurants, but then also being brought to McDonald's and um, realizing having a like a, a treat or that. It is a difficult one to, I suppose, to divide in terms of 
cultural experience because we have so many different people coming from so many different places i find the spanish french and italians bring their children with them everywhere and the we've had plenty of spanish people who have brought in like a two-year-old into the restaurant put them in a baby chair and then ate a meal and most irish people wouldn't do that and 90 percent of the time everything is everything is okay and i kind of like enjoy seeing three or four year olds in the restaurant but i suppose yeah there is um difficulties around puking you know? no, not only puking but even crying yeah crying well crying is a, is, a, is a big thing and i know that's why we say like it depends on the parents to know can their child sit in a restaurant i don't think i would bring but in everyone every parent believes yeah they're perfect but listen look at them i know they're beautiful know. they're but then, perfect then that's, they're that's sweet the, that's the parents fault because i know i couldn't bring my seven-year-old into into a near because she just wouldn't sit still and um i don't think she'd cry in that but i just don't think it'd be suitable i mean it brought it my, can be boring as well it really boring and then you're just talking about giving them a screen and yeah and then just what's the point then yeah exactly I mean, is it just because you don't want to pay a babysitter and you just yeah. want to bring the child with you? I mean, I've brought my Heather, who was when she was eight or nine, to a two Mission Star restaurant and, and she really enjoyed it. And, but I think the child has to be conscious of the experience they're having. I mean, for me, that's when children should be in restaurants, when they know what's going on. But I don't think they just should be sitting there with an iPad in front of them and oh I can see that in Kava quite often yeah all yeah a lot kids and, are just sitting with with tablets yeah and I'm guilty of it as well because sometimes you just want to go out and you have the kids with you and, and has become just a common thing that's another problem um, I think like it's it's interesting now when you I mean you don't get so many individual diners but it's interesting now when you're uh, sitting um, in an airport and every single person is on on a device it's it's kind of like a ghostly thing but and and to have a child at a restaurant that can't sit still without having something in front of them is the beginning of all that and so you can only imagine what's what it's going to be like and and actually the new restaurant we were in, in london robin gills they have plugs built into the table i mean i've seen it in the states and you flip them around you press you press the thing and they so you can hide them and i've seen that in the states years ago i remember at a, at a bar saying oh that's kind of cool they have a plug underneath it but i would say we're getting closer and closer to the point where when i look at we're in the near now and look at the tables and there's no electrical chargers on them and people will start giving out going mm. your, your table has no plug and like the way when we say you come into a restaurant now you'd expect every place to have wi-fi what's your wi-fi code whereas before it wasn't everywhere and um i know that's off the topic of of children but it's tied to the thing about how we can can we sit down in a restaurant and just enjoy the meal or conversation yeah. and just enjoy and just enjoy the meal i remember reading an article from i think some publication in york saying that that we were having the same or same amount of food but the experience has doubled because we are um not only answering stuff on our phone in between we're photographing the food we're sending to our friends we're uploading it so the same amount of food is being had for approximately the same price but people are sitting twice as long in certain restaurants and that makes a difference to the amount of people a restaurant can do and like that's something i suppose people need to think about now of course people could say 
I'll do whatever the fuck I want. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm, for, I'm for one Listen, visit there. I'm advertising your, your restaurant on my Instagram. Yeah, that's true as well. Exactly. Doesn't matter I have two followers. But... Yeah, yeah, but still, someone might come in and say, yeah. oh, my friend was here two days ago. So I actually personally like traveling around and, and uh, uploading stuff and sharing it. But there needs to be a balance. And maybe that's where we need to um, finish up talking about children. Like, there does need to be a balance. And I think, there ha- the, again, maybe this ties back into food education and allergies. I mean, the responsibility has to be on the parent. I mean, the parent cannot look at you in a restaurant while his child is screaming go, well, that's just the way the child is. I mean, there has to be a point where you go, well, you have to leave. And then there'll be a lot of problems. Oh, and, definitely. And de- definitely. And, and, and anger. Anger, yeah. And then not paying for meal, get, giving a bad review and that. And so... I mean, I want to see children in restaurants, but I do want parents to take responsibility for these things. I think consciousness is what it comes down to. I think I want to bring my kids to a restaurant so they can have the experience of it and enjoy it. But certainly for me, cab is more suitable for children than a near. And I think finer the restaurant gets, I think the more difficult it is because the more is at stake in terms of how much has been spent. And if a child was to puke in a near, it's a very small room. That would be a, like a, a disaster for the whole night for everyone. And and that's where I suppose where we leave it. And you can, uh, if you have any ideas, you can contact us. If you think uh, children should be put in boxes outside the door. Um, I'd love that. And collected after their meal. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we, will, uh, we will leave it there. Listen, what happened to Jamie Oliver? Um, so this is a, a story that just broke this week and um, Jamie Oliver's restaurants, Jamie's Kitchen, of which I think approximately 25, between 20 and 25 outlets in the UK, are have all gone into administration. I think most of them have been closed um, due to a lack of um, cash flow. They wouldn't believe naked chef without money. Without money, absolutely. And I suppose him personally, Jamie Oliver, is still worth 450 million and he'll probably come out of it okay. Say again, 450 million. Okay. I think approximately, it could be a bit more. Okay. Um, and I think he has bailed out the restaurants twice maybe, I think once he put 13 million in and to, to try and save them. I mean, look, I have a lot of respect for Jamie Oliver, what he's done in terms of uh, food education, in terms of changing people's eating habits. But to a certain degree, I don't, I don't know how I feel about the closure of 20 restaurants and approximately 1,300 jobs being lost. And many of which I presume are low paid workers who are possibly migrants. And the difficulty is, I would say is, is how much is enough? I mean, it's very difficult. I have three restaurants and I know what it's like to, to try and maintain not only the standards, but staff and consistency. You're talking about plus 30 outlets because I don't think the, the franchises, the one in Ireland isn't affected. So possibly I think the ones outside um, Ireland or outside England are not affected. But I think like there was six or seven of them in London. And so I think like in this global food world, like we need to take stock and like we need to stop maybe we need to stop growing so much you know it's this kind of crazy uh hyper capitalistic thing where you the constant growth i mean there can't be constant growth from limited resources 
Oh, no, definitely not. So, but this is what we imagine. It's like how much growth, how much growth in the country? How many, how many more restaurants did you open? How many, how many restaurants do you need to open? We had Luna close, a really famous um, restaurant in Dublin. I mean, I think it's a tragedy. I mean, the restaurant is part of a group of a number of restaurants. It closed overnight, which means suppliers did not get paid. Staff did not get paid, more than likely. I mean, this full story has not come out yet, but this was a high, this was a successful restaurant. And so if a successful restaurant can't make it, what's the point of opening a restaurant that is not successful? And you can blame rates and you can blame minimum wage and you can blame VAT and all of these things that are that are coming up and that are, that are difficult. But I think the responsibility needs to come down to restaurateurs and investors who are continually flooding the market when there isn't any more um, space to be had. And like, I think personally we are at capacity with, with three places and even at that I think maybe two would be a better number and maybe one is the best number where the owner operator is there and can keep an eye on things but I know that's not always the case and people open up restaurants to be chains you know like Jamie's Kitchen he opened up with this Italian guy Gennaro and they wanted to bring a kind of higher end Italian food which I think is admirable and it's something that I would love to do and I would love to have a chain of Italian restaurants that only did organic food because I think a lot of our Italian food in Ireland is to be honest quite shit and I think that the, the cheapest stuff is bought and sold at the highest margin and I think what we need to do is we need to put more money into the primary produce so farmers get more and possibly where the food is of a better standard but like I don't think opening a chain of Italian restaurants is a, is a good idea anywhere at the moment whether it's the UK or the US because I think already there is too much in the market and I don't think there's anywhere to go I mean you can't compete with the likes of McDonald's and so the, where do you find yourself where is the gap I mean we five or six years ago we had the opportunity to open up a cava yeah, I remember this uh, this guy came to us and he said we could open a cava in Dublin and London and then Paris and then and then he went on and was like then Dubai and I was like hold on a second and I was like he was like oh they don't drink over there but they, they love food and I was like but how do you how do you manage how do you manage that and maybe that's a different a different frame of mind and I just for me I just gone like I just that's insane why do people and this is something that chefs need to answer like why do chefs continually let investors come to them and open up restaurants on their back so on their name and this you can see like Asia is a wash with, well, because with, it's easy yeah because it's easy and money can be made yeah Asia is a wash with Michelin star restaurants where the Michelin star chef never goes is never present because the Michelin star chef could be in France and he's opened up maybe he pops in once every six months has a chat to the staff and there is a kind of a disingenuous nature to this. But also you could say, well, no, it's not because people want to have this person's food and it's good to have an Asian outlet. Uh, but at the same time, I think that it's difficult to maintain standards. And also at the end of the day, if the restaurant closes down, it's not going to affect the chef. It will affect the people that have supplied that restaurant and it will affect the staff. Like it's not the restaurant tour is not going to be out of the chef restaurant tour is not going to be out of pocket. If I had a cava in Dubai and it closed, like it's like I don't I'm like I I don't even have a relationship. Yeah, you didn't put money in it. Yeah, someone would just say, oh, "Can we use your name? Can we put it up?" Okay, I mean we then model it on the menu that we have in the restaurant at the moment. I mean, for me, it's very important that if we were to open another restaurant, we have the responsibility to make sure that it survives. And there is 
great potential for more restaurants. But I don't think there's great potential for more restaurants where the market is already awash with that restaurant. Like burger bars are just everywhere now, you know. And I don't think the I don't know how many how many more burger bars the country can take because also the margins are more difficult. If you open up a burger bar and you're doing a small place and you're you have a niche angle and you're you're using local produce and that, how do you compete with the likes of McDonald's and and Supermax? You can't. And it's fairness to say the majority of people will still go to those takeaways and or they will go to independent ones where stuff is really really cheap and possibly this is a good place to to finish off because at the end of the day it comes down to food education it comes down to the value we put on food and it also comes down to how much we get paid but the value we put on food is very little and so we we go to the shops or we go to a restaurant and we look for discounts and we're just programmed to do this. We're programmed to go into the restaurant now and go, what's the special offer? And and what that means ultimately is, and, and, and maybe the customer doesn't realize this, is the farmer gets less. So it's just, it, that is the way it is. And we will talk about this in the next episode where you have Europe bailing out Ireland's beef farmers with a package of millions of euro because they have to make sure beef isn't too expensive because everyone needs beef. And we have cows everywhere and we have farmers everywhere who are losing money because of Brexit, but they don't get enough money because so many people needs to, need to get a cut. And unfortunately, the people in the middle are the ones that are making the most money. The people who are taking the product from A and giving it to B, and that's neither the farmer or the restaurateur. And that's the, the difficulty. But I think people need to people need to know that when they go in and they buy a discount meal or they buy a discount um, product, that maybe it's not as good. And like, I don't think we live our lives that way in relation to clothing a lot of times. I mean, I think when, of course you get discounts. Well, I'd say I'm guilty here. For example, if I have to buy something, not clothing, uh, but some gadgets, I would probably check Chinese shops first. Yeah. And then I prefer to wait three weeks or four weeks, but pay one tenth of the shop price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that's general mindset. Just no, but it's, and, and, and it's not. How do you um, like? It's difficult to. Um, I'm not saying it's good. No, it's, and how do you get out of that? Because again, we have limited resources, and we can't. People don't have all the money in the world to be buying expensive chickens. But I think that it's 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 striking a balance between the two. I mean, I, I, I hate to see people who continually buy designer clothes for uh, exorbitant sums and yet at the same time look for the deal in the supermarket. I'm not talking about people who only have a certain amount of money. That's how you can afford the clothes. Maybe because you're buying <laughs> you're, you're saving in you're supermarket. Saving money, yeah, and you're buying and you're 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 decked out to the nines in some in some uh, in some gear. But yeah, like I, I think as all these things we talk about, there's never a black and white issue and there's never any a clear cut answer. And these are just things to think about, the things that we try and change and the restaurants that we have at the moment and Food on the Edge tries to change these things and tries to I suppose think about them and and possibly maybe we need to think smaller in this massive world and we need to think more locally orientated as opposed to thinking too global or 
at the same time we have the internet and you can buy anything from anywhere and i do so uh, how do you balance those things but we're going to leave it there i hope you've enjoyed our podcast and you can listen to um all of the previous podcasts and if you have any ideas that you'd like us to talk about in relation to food email us at info at foodtheedge.ie and we'll talk to you next time